Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 140. We are back after a lengthy hiatus as we prep for the holidays and the craziness of the baseball offseason. And I'm really excited for this guest um, because it's a guy who had a, an awesome breakout year, just one of the really good dudes in baseball. Got a chance to work with him extensively during the lockout as, as baseball was waiting for the season to start back up um, for 2022. And really had some great conversations about what he's done, what he's doing, and where he wants to be and and I like this conversation because um, it's one of those guys who really drives home the important points to kids, parents, and coaches about being very process driven instead of just outcome driven. Um, he sorted a lot of things out in his career over the last couple of years just by understanding what the, the key things that he had to do day in and day out um, to get where he, he wanted to be. So really good one coming up and I'm excited for you to join us. Today's episode is brought to you by Proteus Motion. Proteus Motion's patented technology is the only way to measure strength and power for every human movement. To date, it's only been possible to measure physical strength and power for movements in a straight line, similar to a squat and bench press. However, less than 5% of human movement is actually taking place in a straight line. The Proteus system allows us to measure power for the overwhelming majority of human movements for the first time ever. Proteus software guides users through a four-minute physical assessment to arm trainers with unprecedented performance data and insights, creating an entirely new standard for personalized fitness and physical rehabilitation. All this is enabled by a total reinvention of resistance training called 3D Resistance. Training power and acceleration with Proteus's patented 3D Resistance is safer and can be more efficient and more effective than traditional resistance training tools depending on the circumstances. On a personal level, I've been a big fan of Proteus for the past few years. We have a unit in both Cressy Sports Performance Facilities and actually help to develop the Cressy Power Test for rotational athletes. The information we've gathered from this testing has been an absolute game changer in helping us to develop more optimal programs for our athletes. Additionally, as a training initiative, work on the Proteus has allowed us to train different points on the force velocity curve and rotational patterns in ways that medicine ball work never could. You can learn more about them by listening to episode 106 of this Elite Baseball Development Podcast or by heading to www.proteusmotion.com. Again, that's proteusmotion.com, P-R-O-T-E-U-S motion.com. I promise that you won't be disappointed. Today's guest is a left-handed pitcher who grew up in Colorado and was drafted in the 28th round of the 2014 MLB draft by the Red Sox. He opted not to sign and instead went on to pitch for the University of Oregon. He was a starting pitcher for the Ducks all three years and pitched for the USA Collegiate National Team as well. In his junior year, he set a school record with 17 strikeouts in a game on March 3rd and then proceeded to break his own record with 20 strikeouts in a game on April 29th. He was drafted by the New York Mets with the 20th pick in the first round of the 2017 MLB Draft. After a few years of minor league baseball, he was called up to the big leagues on July 28th, 2020, when he picked up a win after pitching five and two-thirds of innings against the Red Sox. He established himself as more of a big league regular in 2020, making 28 appearances, including 19 starts. He struck out 126 batters in 105 innings while posting a 3.84 ERA. Please welcome to the show, David Peterson. David, thanks so much for doing this. I am, uh, I'm really excited to talk to you, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Um, so, you know, this podcast is, is a baseball development podcast. I think a lot of people you know, they, they talk to big leaguers and they get excited about like, Oh, what were you thinking in this situation? Almost like your, your classic post-game interview. And, and one of the things I've tried to do with this is really delve in on like 
all the years of work that went in before guys became big leaguers, like what helped them get to that point. And, you know, hopefully you can learn some lessons for the, like the parents and kids and, you know, other coaches that are listening to this. So I'm always fascinated to learn what kind of players our big league guys were when they were in middle school, they were in high school. And I, I read a story online that you actually grew 10 inches between eighth and ninth grade. So you're six, six now, like, did you go through a, like an awkward clumsy stage or did you find that like that added height, actually made you really like springy and athletic because people can go in two different directions yeah no i mean it was it was uh it was between seventh and eighth grade um so it was like i had just joined a new team and i was kind of yeah. middle of the pack in terms of height and <laughs> went into the school year come back for our summer before high school and i'm one of the tallest kids on the team um i think i went from like five six to six four and so i went into high school like six four um and yeah i did i I was one of those guys that went into a clumsy phase. Um, mm-hmm. Just my body had grown so fast on me that, you know, I was, it took a while for me to kind of adjust to the changes that have been made and mm-hmm. um, kind of get used to how, how everything started moving in, in new and different ways. And yeah, I mean, I remember like that eighth grade year, there's times where I spent days at home just cause I couldn't get out of bed with growing pains. You know, it's like, <laughs> So my knees, my hips, everything. It's just, so yeah, it was, it was an interesting process, but, um, it was fun when I started to, uh, come out of that clumsy phase and, and be able to use that athleticism with my length. It's a big, like your center of mass going up 10 inches is a really, really big deal. Had you gotten into like strength and conditioning at that point in time? Like, cause that's a strategy we use for a lot of like younger kids to like overcome a growth spurt. It's like, Hey, get a button, some hamstrings and good things seem to happen as you learn to like ground yourself. Were you, were you involved in that at that point or was it foreign to you? Um, I had done some stuff growing up. Um, I'd gone to a couple different places when I first moved to Colorado. Um, but I hadn't, I didn't really have anything consistent. Um, obviously like I would have now or, or even when I was in high school. Um, I remember my, I think it was beginning of my junior year is kind of when, um, I got on with, um, my first trainer just very routinely, you know, every week, a couple mm-hmm. days a week. Um, we had a couple different guys from my high school that went there. So, um, I was kind of referred to him by a couple other teammates and, yeah. um, yeah, up to, up until that point I had seen some trainers and stuff, but a lot of it was just kind of keeping me athletic as a kid and yeah. doing different things and, um, trying to be as athletic as possible, do, do different movements, play different sports. And, yeah. um, yeah, just just build my foundation. I know you're a hoops guy. What what other sports did you play in, in that age range? Um, yeah, I, I played soccer a little bit growing up when I was little. Uh, that didn't last too long, and then um, played hockey a little bit when I was really young. I kind of wish I would have yeah. stuck with it um, yeah. because I I have a, a huge interest in hockey now, um, mm-hmm. and and kind of going from college until now and. Um, I played football my freshman year. Football was always something I played, like pickup and recess and all that stuff. And it was always something I wanted to play. My mom forever wouldn't let me play. Um, and <laughs> finally, my freshman year of high school, I convinced her, talked her into it week after week. And so uh, I played one year of football, and um, they wanted to send me to a quarterback and a quarterback mm-hmm. coach and switch me from receiver to quarterback. And we, we threw 10 to 15 passes maybe a game. And I was like, I'm not going to go spend money to learn – how to be a quarterback to <laughs> hand the ball off. I could do that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but my freshman year was kind of the turning point. Um, mm-hmm. I played football. I was starting to work out with basketball and then 
uh, the varsity baseball coach had come up to me uh, that freshman winter and, and wanted me to start working out with the varsity team. And that was kind of when everything took a backseat. That's interesting. I mean, I, you're, you're in a, in an area of the country where like I, I'm in Florida right now and it's, it's so much different than where we started out with the business in Massachusetts, where like there were very defined periods, like football went to Thanksgiving, basketball picked up and went to like the third Monday in March. And maybe there was like a couple of weeks if we were in the state tournament where it would blend into baseball and then baseball went to the end of spring. Like how was it in Colorado? Did, did seasons blend together? Like, did you actually have scenarios where they would overlap for multiple months and you had to make hard decisions there? Not really. I mean, I think it's pretty similar to Massachusetts. You know, yeah. I, I look back in football for varsity, the, the playoffs had kind of gone right up until about Thanksgiving time. Um, basketball was kind of the same. I think we had like our state tournament was in early March, maybe end of February. And then, and then uh, our first games in baseball, I guess were in beginning of April. Yeah. Maybe sure, end of sure. March, but shoveling snow off the field usually <laughs> yeah i mean it was denver's so weird because it can snow one day and then the next day it's 70 and sunny and it all melts off mm-hmm. um i mean there was plenty of days where it snowed the day before and we were out there shoveling the field and plowing and trying to get it ready for a game that week so um yeah it was it was an interesting experience but yeah they kind of they were separate there was a little bit of blend like you said if, if you go into the state tournament or something like that but um mm-hmm. it was it was pretty cut similar to Massachusetts. You kind of led into my next question. So like, obviously you, you outlined some of the drawbacks of being in a cold weather climate, like finding places to long toss in the winter, all that stuff. Do you think there were perks to it as well in, in the way that it kind of forced you to regiment your calendar and all that? Or where, where do you look back on it and view it as? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I think for me, just, just being growing up originally in Southern California and, and playing mm-hmm. baseball, year round and never really stopping. I loved it. Um, and there was part of me that hated when we would work out in the gym, you know, I mean, we, we were at the high school that I went to, we were, uh, um, blessed to have a really nice sized gym that we could long toss in. We could do a lot of work. Um, and there were some facilities that we used that also kind of helped us during the winter times. But, um, personally, I mean, it would have been, it would have been awesome to be outside every single day and have practice. And, and I was, jealous of friends that lived in Florida. Cause I, cause I played fall baseball and summer baseball in Florida in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, I would go out there for the summer and live in Florida and play. Um, and they would, I mean, they'd play anywhere between 30 and 40 games in high school starting at the end of February, uh, mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And we didn't start until a month later. And we played, we played 20 to 22 regular season games yeah. and then it was playoffs, you know, so it was a lot smaller sample size, which, Mm-hmm. I think kind of hurts recruiting. Um, but when I was in high school, I, I noticed that Colorado baseball had kind of picked up and um, we had more recruits. We had more committed guys. Uh, we had every year there was another guy or two that went in the draft. And so mm-hmm. um, I think the quality of, of players has kind of elevated Colorado baseball when sometimes maybe the weather has, has held us back or, or whatnot. I think it probably protected you a little bit too. You know, it's really hard. I mean, I, I actually had a call today with a high school kid, pretty good prospect who's having a bunch of elbow issues. He threw 70 innings in high school alone this year. Like, and it's, that's really, it's hard to do if you're a big leaguer logging 70 innings between, I mean, over like a two, two and a half month calendar period, um, yeah. going out and throwing complete games every week is a big deal. And so he was hanging by the time June even rolled around. So you're, you're a little bit protected 
um, from yourself, you know, especially if you're a talented player who punches out the world, like before you know it, you've thrown 120 pitch complete games week after week after week. And it, it kind of bites you in the bottom of the tail end. Um, you, your senior in high school, you, you broke your fibula playing basketball. And obviously it was pretty untimely because you, you had a good chance of being a high round pick out of high school. It, it led to you being selected later in the draft and you turned it down and went to Oregon and had a great career. And obviously the rest is history. You were a first rounder out of there a couple of years later. I'm curious in hindsight, when you look back at yourself as a senior in high school, we, we know college guys seem to have a higher success rate than, than high school guys. Actually, it's not seem they do. Um, w- would you have been prepared to sign out of high school? Do you think you would have, you know, had the professional course that you had, do you think you would have developed in the, in the same way if you could look back on it and do it over again? I think that depends on if you ask me or if you ask the 18 year old David Peterson that was yeah. excited about the possibility of signing. Um, yeah. I mean, I was, I was really excited about it. You know, there was, um, I was getting attention that led to thinking there was a chance to sign out of high school and mm-hmm. obviously the broken leg shut that all down. And mm-hmm. I told people, I think that's me breaking my leg might be one of the, the best things that's ever happened to me. Um, obviously in the moment it sucked. Um, I was pretty emotional after it just cause I knew that I was probably going to college no matter what, I wasn't going to get picked high enough where it was worth it to pass college. Um, and the opportunity that I had at Oregon. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just, I look back at it now and I look at it when I end a professional baseball and you can just tell, you know, when you go to a spring training complex or you go to a minor league complex, you can tell the guys that have gone to college. You can tell the guys that have come out of high school and, um, you know, I just, I, I don't think I would have been prepared. Um, I also think it's, it would have depended on who I would have gone to. You know, I think there's, um, whether they like to hear it or not, I think there's organizations that develop guys better than others. And, um, you know, some, some high school kid may get with the right organization and they can expose his potential and, and maximize his ability. And there's some guys that might get lost in a system because they weren't developed properly or they didn't have the right coaching along the way. So, Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very grateful that I was almost forced to go to college and, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it, trade it for the world. So, uh, like you said, it, it worked out and, um, yeah. And I just, I, if I, I've thought about it, you know, it's like I have a son now and it's when he gets to that point, if he's in that same situation, I had a coach, Walt Weiss, who played in the big leagues for a long time. Um, I asked him about it cause he had kind of the same thing, you know, he was looking at going to UNC or going pro. And, um, he decided to go the college route. And, um, he was pretty adamant about that when I asked him is, is go to college, take your time, develop, you know, and, and professional baseball will be there down the road. And so, um, yeah, I'm very grateful that I went to college and I really don't think I would have been anywhere close to the same position had I left out of high school. One of the things I thought about after I initially read that too was it's actually a really interesting like testament to how people view injuries going into the draft. Like nowadays, people don't bat an eyelash at like a Tommy John and an eighteen year old that's throwing ninety eight, but but a broken fibula, like a non weight bearing bone, um, you know, basically hurt your draft stock. It's it's fascinating. I mean, that was two thousand fourteen. What a, what a difference like eight years makes. It's just really eye opening that being injured is like is way more accepted now. Um, everyone's broken, but. Like you mentioned, going to college, it was a blessing in disguise. What I thought was really cool about you is like very rarely do you see like steady linear improvements, right? Normally you see that guy that like struggles to find his way. And then all of a sudden it's like six miles an hour in a year or something like that for you. 
Average fastball below was 87.7 as a freshman, 89.4 as a sophomore, 91.3 as a junior. Um, you know, I'm curious, like, what was the difference maker for you? You know, like steady linear progress very rarely happens, right? We see a lot of guys who go to college, they put on 20 pounds the first year, they go from 89 to 93, and then they they actually get worse. They or they flounder, they get hurt, and you just kind of like continued on this like cool very consistent linear trajectory. Like when you look at that, I don't know if you knew aware, you were aware that it, it kind of went like that, but was there something you look back on that allowed you to be so steady with it over the course of those three years? I think part of that just, it goes back to, um, that had kind of been the way that it was for me. You know, I was, I had that huge growth spurt. And then ever since then it was, it was, I was kind of just slowly taking those jumps up and up and up. Um, and I was never really focused on, I need to get to this velo. I, I never got caught up in that. I never got caught up in um, all the all the data and stuff like that. And I, for a long time, I had a very old school mindset of go out there, get out and do your thing and let the rest take care of itself. You know, so I figured as I got stronger, as I got older, the velocity would come. And, and I saw that year by year. And, um, so it really wasn't something that I was worried about. Um and I think part of it has to do with, uh, like we talked about, getting comfortable with the growth spurt that I had and, and the adjustments that I had to make with my body and, and learning how to use everything to my advantage. And then getting into college and, and being in um, a great, having a great strength coach uh, at Oregon that really was was there to facilitate and um, help me along with, with building muscle. I, I didn't put on a ton of weight, um, from when I went in like my freshman year, um, it was, that was also pretty gradual in terms of mm -hmm. the weight gain. Um, and I think it was just yeah. kind of growing into my body and, and, um, losing that a little bit of that childhood stuff and, and mm -hmm. starting to, to tighten some things up. What was your, what was your body weight? I mean, you were six, six when you got to campus. What did you weigh? Yeah, I think I left. I think my senior year, I left at six, six and two, two twenty five. Yeah, so you pretty put together as a as a high school senior. That's, that's yeah. I mean, and, and you're twenty, and then yeah. left college at two thirty, two thirty five. So, so, so you were you were there from a body weight standpoint. But like the lesson here, I, I, there's you know, there's some six foot seven kid who can't touch his toes right now. It's like listening to this, and I always tell him like, tall guys are long term projects. You know, what I mean, mm -hmm. like when you're six foot eight, you can't just go bang out 15 pushups. Like it's nothing. That's a, that's a long spine that has to be controlled. There's just a lot more variables that, you know, arms and legs flying everywhere. And I, one of the things I, I'm actually curious about with you is I, I've heard tall guys over the years, like, and to me, tall is like anything over six, five. Um, you know, they, they wrestle with like, do I, do I use my height to stand tall and throw downhill? Do I use it to have like a, you know, a, a, a ton of extension, like a Logan Gilbert, right. Or do I, turn into Randy Johnson and try to go East West and like throw from behind left-handed hitters. Like, did you actually wrestle with that mechanic, like how you were going to use your height or was it something that just came kind of organically over the course of time? I think it's something that kind of just came organically. I've always sort of moved more North to South and, and some of my stuff with originally being, um, predominantly sinker and not having a four seam. And then when I got yeah. into college, I added the four seam. Um, so I would, I would have 
when I would go east to west, that was when I would get the arm side run and the misses mm-hmm. arm side. Um, and so for me, it was always trying to stay north and south. And um, for a long time, which kind of was never really pointed out to me, but um, I would I had a softer front side, you know. So I would I would kind of sink on that front side instead of really sticking to the ground and staying stable. And that's something over the last couple of years that's that's come along really well for me. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's something just in terms of, like I said earlier, getting with the right people and, and having someone look at that and say, look, you've got great extension. You've got all this height. You've got this, this, and this that are working for you, but you're letting, you're letting some of it slip with a soft front side. You're letting some of this advantage that you have naturally with the way that you're built, um, leave your body the way that, that you're moving down the mound. So, um, yeah, I think that's just kind of, for me, it's, it's always been more North and South and it's, um, just kind of been a work in progress as we've gone. Um, I can't really say from, from high school up until now, there's been anything really major. I mean, if, if you look, there's, you take the, the age gap out of it. There's a lot of things in my delivery that probably look the same. Um, Mm -hmm. there's some stuff It just, if you look at it shot by shot over the years, it's, you can see the difference, but it's like you said, it's just kind of been pretty organic and, and changed year by year. Yeah. And you know, you're interested, you kind of held that velocity well through your minor league career up to the big leagues. And this year it, it ticked up quite a bit. Um, you know, there were, there were a couple of 98s on the gun this year and um, you know, went from kind of like living at 91 to, you know, being 93, you know, you, you mentioned like cleaning up the soft front side, like what, what else contributed in your mind to like, the, the 2022 you obviously took a big step forward this year not just with your heater but with your secondary stuff like when you look back on on a season where you you obviously you know really established yourself as a big leaguer what were the big things that you think did it for you both velocity and otherwise yeah i think there was it, it was a huge combination of things um starting with um going back to last, last off season making a change in my training um uh, switching the guy that I was working with here in Colorado, I'd worked with the same guy for eight years. I started with him when I was 17 and I worked with him up until last off season. And um, I felt like it was a time to make a change. You know, I felt like I wasn't, um, I wasn't continuing to move forward and and it just was the right time to switch. Um, And a lot of that, after I made the switch, a lot of the things that got exposed. And I think some of the things that we worked on during the lockout this year, when I came down to Florida was, um, the foundation that I had under me, you know, I, mm-hmm. I've got muscle, I, I can move weight. I can, I can put stuff on the bar, you know, but how efficiently am I moving it? You know, mm-hmm. how, how does that, can I do multiple sets? Can I, can I make this, am I moving that weight as efficiently as possible? And am I using the right body parts instead of, instead of muscling up and, and using things that I shouldn't be using in certain movements, whether it's weight training or throwing, um, really building that foundation from the bottom up and, and then adding that strength component, which, which was huge for me. Um, just overall, I think mechanically it helped me make some changes naturally, just putting myself in a better position body wise, um, weight wise. I think it helped a lot. Um, and then health wise, you know, this, this year I didn't, I didn't go on the IL at all. Um, which was a big, big goal for me is just stay healthy all year. You know, I knew, I, I knew in the off season and going into spring training, kind of what my spot was going to look like. It was kind of that six starter and, um, had someone gone down, like 
we had guys during the year I was going to fill in and kind of go back and forth. And that was probably going to be my situation for the year, you know, unless we lost someone long-term, which I'm glad we didn't glad all those guys could come back and um, then obviously move into the bullpen. But um, yeah, I think it was just a lot of that velocity stuff, you know, it was being able to efficiently move my body. And then on top of that, when I could move efficiently, building that strength piece on top of it and, and, just being in, in better shape, um, and being lighter. I mean, that's, that Mm -hmm. for me has been one thing. And, um, I know that's something that, that we're going to get to, but just I've, I've, for me as a tall guy, being lighter is, is better for me. I feel better there. I feel like I can throw harder. Um, and it just, as an athlete, as a pitcher, I feel more comfortable at a lighter weight than I do at a heavy weight. And I've, I've done both and it just, I've seen the differences and, and what works and what doesn't. As a friendly reminder, this episode is brought to you by Proteus Motion. Proteus's resistance training is known as 3D resistance, and it's revolutionizing the way that we can train athletes in a variety of planes of motion, and also the way that we can test those athletes to best design programs to make them successful. We use Proteus at Cressy Sports Performance for the past few years and collaborated them to develop the Cressy Power Test for rotational athletes. If you're working with baseball players, this is a must-have tool for making sure that you design the right kind of programs for your athletes to get them to where they want to be as quickly and safely as possible. The Proteus allows you to train various points rotationally on the force velocity curve in ways that you just can't get with medicine balls, weighted balls, weighted bats, things like that. Again, you can learn more about Proteus at ProteusMotion.com. Again, that's ProteusMotion.com, P-R-O-T-E-U-S Motion.com. Yeah. You know, I, I remember our, our initial conversation when you got down to Florida, like one of the things we, we talked about a lot was like just, you know, moving fast to throw fast. But I, I think, you know, one thing is we, we, we definitely like hit a lot harder with some of the medicine ball stuff, attacking rotation more aggressively. And I think some of that's just an opportunity to hone in on what you want to do in your delivery. Like if you want to be, you know, if you want to get your center of mass moving faster, like use more step behinds, more shuffles, more things to get going. Right. If you, if you want to work into a front side, like there's a lot of things you can do to teach that front hip pullback. You know, I use the analogy of like riding a bike into a curb um, with a lot of our athletes. And I think, you know, people look at the weight room and it's like, Hey, just go get strong and then go play your sport. It'll magically carry over. And that kind of works when you're 17, 18, 19. And um, it's easy to get high school kids strong and, you know, everybody throws harder. Puberty puberty makes strength coaches look really, really smart. Um, I think when it it comes a lot harder down the road, when, when rotation is, is involved and, you know, nobody needs a vertical jump coach, but there's, you know, countless pitching coaches out there because transferring motion and or transferring forces in three planes of motion is, is really complex. So yeah, I think it's especially complex when it's, it's a tall frame, you know, there's a lot of places where energies can leak out. So it's been, been cool to see, um, to pivot a little bit. Um, and you hinted at it, your guy, you mentioned learning the four seamer when you went to college, um, after being a two seam guy all along. And, and obviously there are very different scenarios where you use each, but let's talk about the mentality on both. Like I, I know there are pitchers where they struggle to throw a bill if the two of them blend together. You see some of the guys in the game who have taken big step forward, you know, like Michael King last year, like Pablo Lopez does it. Like some of these guys that have two separate fastballs, it's a, it's a difference maker. What is like the mentality for you? Is it, is it grip and rip on both and trust the, the seams? Are you trying to do something different with them? Yeah, I think it's for me, it, it's, being a sinker ball guy growing up um, and then trying to learn the four seam 
Uh, it's that's been a pitch for me. I think this this year was in 21 and, and a little bit in 20. I, I felt comfortable with it. You know, I felt like it was something I started to see for myself the results that I could get from it. You know, and, and the potential that it had. Um, and this year, I was I was really. I mean, you can look at the usage. My my usage on my four seam was a lot more than my sinker, and there's there's a reason for that. Um, and I think it was just as the four seam got better, and and some of the mechanical stuff that I've changed gradually, um, it lended itself to getting more ride and, and keeping the four seam straighter. That was the biggest thing when I started throwing it was being a sinker ball guy. I'd always get arm side run, and you know if I, if I'm trying to go in on a righty uh, with a four seam and it runs back over, then I'm in a dangerous spot and I'm probably not going to get great results. Um, and so that was something that I played with, with grips. I switched it up, um, trying different stuff, arm action wise. And, um, I think a lot of it, honestly, it goes back to cleaning up, um, my body and, and the way that I move and, and the body control that I have. Um, I, I kind of had to learn that the hard way in 21 with starting with the oblique strain and then the broken foot and, um, I really had to kind of assess where I was at physically and, and how can I kind of leave these injuries in the rear view? You know, there's obviously freak things that happen and, and that's kind of unavoidable, but the everyday stuff, the, the nagging stuff here and there, how can I avoid that? So how can I be in the best position physically? And, um, I think that has helped the four seam and the sinker, um, the four seam took off and it was a big weapon for me. And so. I relied a lot on it. And I think that's kind of the way the game has gone a little bit the last couple of years. I mean, we've seen the uptick in fortunes. We've seen the, yeah. the obsession over ride and, and these different data points that have shown a lot of success for guys. Um, and I think my sinker, I started to lose some movement. I started to lose some of the effectiveness of that throughout this year. Um, but I felt like at the end of the year, I made a grip change. Um, I was kind of, talking to some different guys that have been around a while, um, talking about some left-handers that they had played with. And, and one of the guys that came up was Britain. Um, and, and how, I mean, you look at the, the really good years that he had in Baltimore. And I mean, I think it was like 95% usage of, mm-hmm. of sinker and, um, uh, like 5% slider, whatever it was, it, it was astronomical. Yeah. He was just throwing sinkers and guys were, couldn't hit him. I mean, he was hitting the dirt with them and they looked like they were going down the middle. So, um, just kind of, that was one thing was I had always relied on the sinker, you know, and I'd never really struggled with it. And this year it was like, okay, the four seam has come up, but now the sinker starting to struggle. And so it's like, w- when you talk to guys, it's just about continuing to put that puzzle together. And, and yeah. when something else gets better and something else lacks, um, finding, finding the solution for it. So, uh, it's been, it's been fun and, and it's been good to get confidence in the four seam and really see the way that I can use it to my advantage. And then it was also nice at the end of the year to see a really effective sinker at times. Um, and, and knowing that I can be in a position with my body and my arm, um, and mechanics to throw both effectively use both and, um, have those, have those two be separate and and two different weapons. I think that's a, a really important point. Um, you know, we're, we're in an era right now where technology is, is great. Don't get me wrong. We use it every day and we love it. Um, you know, whether it's various like, you know, ball tracking, you know, technologies, you know, the Edgertronic to actually give you direct feedback. And I, I think we sometimes get so focused up on like 
the fingers and the hand that we often forget that there's an entire body that's delivering that to a, a position. And, and you'll see guys that'll like bang their heads against the wall, trying to, you know, change a seam orientation or something like that. When in reality, it, it has to do with the direction that the lower half is providing or something like that. So I think it's a really important message, probably, probably an extra important message for tall guys where, you know, if the direction's bad, it's, they're not off by a millimeter, they're off by a foot. Um, yeah. So I think that, that's excellent feedback. Um, you did this year go back and forth between starting and relieving for the first time in your career. Uh, I'm curious, was that, was that a tough adjustment for you? Like, did it take a, a big learning curve? Uh, I, w- I wouldn't say it took a big learning curve, but it, de- it definitely took some time. You know, I'm glad that I was thrown into the bullpen before the playoffs. Um, I was glad that I got a couple opportunities towards the middle of the year to um, make that transition, kind of figure out my routine before the game, how I prepare, how much I play catch, all that. Um, And then during the game, you know, what do I do? Um, Especially as a guy that is new to the bullpen, there's guys that have their defined roles. And I'm kind of in that spot where I'm coming off of being a starter and, and I could go multiple innings. If something happens, I could go, in an inning where there's two lefties and a righty, you know, it it was really an undefined role at the beginning. And I think for me, it was, um, it was a challenge. It was a challenge that I had fun with and I accepted. And um, a lot of it, you know, a lot of it was mental. It was just kind of from being a starter my whole life, my whole career, um, the way you game plan as a starter versus the way you game plan as a reliever is is completely different. And, And I think the mentality is too, you know, you have that, doggy dog mentality or, or that intensity but I think it's it comes out in a different way um whereas okay I'm gonna I'm starting this game I'm trying to get through the lineup three times I'm trying to get six plus I want I want to I want to like you're thinking about multiple at bats against guys whereas relieving they give you the ball and it's like hey you got these three guys go get them you know yeah and so I took a lot from I had some success. I had some failure in those, in those first two outings. And I took a lot from it, you know, and, and talking to guys that had, had done the switch, like a Carlos Carrasco, who had been a starter for a long time, went to the bullpen, came back. It helped him a lot, you know, and, and, and that was one thing for me was, okay, let's, if we're going to be in the bullpen, let's nail this and get everything that I need as a reliever down. And then obviously the goal is in the future to, to start and be in the rotation again. I have a guy right in front of me who can help me see that and how it helps him, you know, and then I have guys who have done both and have been in the bullpen for a long time. And, and they really kind of took me under their wing and just talked to me about the mentality of it, how you mm-hmm. approach the guys, how you approach the game when you get in there and it's, you have one inning, maybe two, if, if you go quick and, and they need you for another, but you're really mm-hmm. focused on that, that slot of three guys that you're looking to go get. So, um, it was good to to kind of see that, you know, see how does my starter mentality coming out of the bullpen affect me versus how does how does it feel when you tap into that reliever mentality and it's yeah. it's go 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 best on best and and just go get those guys. So I think that helped me yeah. uh, later on when I transitioned to the bullpen for the later part of the year. Did you have a, a tough time with like the adjustment just in managing throwing volume? Like, I think the, the thing I've seen the most when like, even like when guys come up to the big leagues for the first time is like, they, they, they just don't know how to manage throwing because the, obviously relief appearances are way less predictable than they would be if you're in double A or triple A where it's, all right, you're going to throw every other day or every third day. Like and you can plan everything around it. D- did you struggle to figure out how much to do pregame on those days? Uh, not necessarily. You know, I, I kind of just, 
personally, I tried to listen to my body. I tried to listen to, okay, if I was throw basically throw my starting stuff out the window and, and okay, if I need to throw, like, if I need to be at my best, how does my arm feel? What do I need to get before the game? Like kind of comparing it to my week as a starter. It's like, okay, I have a, a day two bullpen and I'm pretty sore. How much do I want to stretch it out a little more, you know? And, and then thinking, okay, I'm playing catch at four o'clock. I may not throw till eight or nine. How does this, you know, I think that's where I kind of found, okay, what do I do between catch play and when I go in the game to let my body relax and recover and then be able to turn it back on again. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the throwing wasn't that bad. You know, I just, I tried to keep the arm moving. I tried to keep working on stuff. It, It actually gave me some time to put some more intensity behind balls when yeah. I got to the field and, and played catch and, and work on some of the off-speed stuff and mm-hmm. um, some of the stuff that I wanted to accomplish. Um, but yeah, I think it was, it was, for me, it was more the, the routine in general, just of, yeah. okay, how do I manage my day now that I'm in the bullpen? And, and I have to give credit to the, the coaching staff in the front office because they did do a really good job when I first switched in terms of as much as they could giving me a heads up of, Hey, you're going to be in the bullpen the next couple of days. And then, Hey, we're going to send you back down. You're going to get a start. We need you back in the rotation. And, and they were, they were smart and yeah. um, articulate about the way that they built me back up to go back into the starting rotation. So it wasn't just like, Hey, go to the bullpen for three days. Mm-hmm. Now go down to AAA and throw 90 pitches in a start and come back and start in the big leagues. You know, they, mm-hmm. they were, had a plan. they were very proactive in terms of their plan for me. Um, and the communication was good. And so that I think helped me as a player in terms of, okay, knowing what my schedule is going to look like, kind of seeing what our schedule as a team is, is the way it's going to play out for me as a starter or reliever and whatnot. And so, mm-hmm. um, that was another big thing that helped me was, was having that line of communication and, and them being open about what my role was. Yeah. Talk to tell you about like the workout side of things. Um, you know, obviously you talked about like just lifting heavy stuff didn't help nearly as much, but what about like the in season aspect of things? Um, you know, did it change starting versus relieving? What's like a typical five day rotation look like for it? Yeah, it, it did change. It was just, like you said, it's, it's pretty unpredictable when you go to the bullpen in terms of what you're throwing, especially if you don't have a role, you know, if you're, yeah. if you're the closer, if you're the eighth inning guy and you threw the last two days or three days, you know, you're gonna have a day off and, and whatnot. Um, so that for me was really just kind of playing it day by day. And if I throw, do I get something, um, right after I throw or do I wait and just go do all my recovery stuff um, in case I have to go back to back. And then if I go back to back, I know I'm down so I can get a lift in then and, and really just kind of trying to play that, that throwing schedule. Um, but I felt really good when I was starting in terms of the way that my schedule was, you know, I was the work that we did during the lockout um, and during spring training, I think was, was very helpful for me. And it, it was a way for me to really, kind of accomplish what I wanted to physically in terms of what do I need to do every single, what does my routine look like every single day in terms of activation? What does it look like before I even touch the field, before I touch my glove? How does my preparation look? What does it look like between coming in from catch play, setting up our five days? You know, I, I was a day three bullpen guy for a long time. And um, then we switched it. I don't know, maybe early July. Um, talking to some of the guys and, and picking some guys' brains that have, had been around a while. And, um, 
Max was one of those guys that I leaned on a lot in terms of that. And, and you know, that's one thing about him is you ask him a question and, and he's not going to give you an answer unless he has a full, <laughs> full case study behind it, which I absolutely love, you know, it, it, so stuff like that was helpful for me in terms of yeah. making the switch and, and the logic behind it. And, and really, I felt like the first two years in the big leagues, barring the time that I had injuries, was a lot of trial and error with my routine. But I felt like this year I went into it in spring training and it was like, okay, I have my routine. I have everything that I need. Like, I know what I need to do every single day. And it was, now we go. You know, it wasn't like, mm-hmm. we're trying this now, we're trying that. Like, I had with with the training staff i had my arm care stuff locked i had my workout routines locked and, and it was just rinse and repeat and and go out yeah. there and perform yeah that day two and day three pen is like the hardest decision ever day two you can't step on the gas as much because you're still hanging a little bit but you get extra recovery on the back end day three is better if you feel like you need to constantly work on stuff but you always have to pull yourself back and, and not do too much and wind up short on the tail end. So um, the biggest thing I always tell guys is like figure out a way to consolidate stressors. Just don't beat yourself up every day. If you're going to be a day two pen guy, it usually means that day one after a start needs to be a little bit more low key um, or you got to go, you know, three days in a row and then really make days three and four a little bit lighter. So there's, there's a lot of different ways to attack it. But important thing is you have like the hills and the valleys that make it work. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe interesting last uh, conversation what, what what takes you to the next level? Like, what are the things that are, are high priorities for you this offseason? Is it just consistency? Is it is it something else? Yeah, I definitely think there's a consistency piece to it. Um, mm-hmm. I think having the success that I had this year and um, not only statistically, but um, like we talked about earlier, just with the confidence of, of I've seen all the pitches. I feel like I'm in a good spot with my pitches. And obviously there's, there's always work to be done and, and things to build off of. But, um, I feel like my five day routine is in a really good spot. I feel like my off season routines in a really good spot. Um, I feel like now it's for me, it's okay. How do we build off of this instead of what works, what doesn't work, really trying to put all this together from making that jump from the minor leagues to the big leagues. But now, okay, I know what works for me and I've seen it work for a full season and being healthy for a full season in the big leagues, um, one sixty two plus playoffs. And um yeah, now I think it's it's basically, you know, I, we have a good sample size in terms of what I did well this year, what I didn't do yeah. well this year and, and what I can improve on. And um I think that's kind of where we go next, you know, is being healthy, having a large sample size, having innings under my belt. Um, now, now where do we, where do we go? Where do we get better? What do we build off of? What do we continue to keep getting better? Um, and, and maximizing the potential that I have, um, while staying healthy and, and doing all the things that I know I need to do to be prepared physically and mentally, uh, every fifth day. I love that. All right. So we always do when we're wrapping stuff up as we do a lightning round. So you can be as, as succinct as you want with your answers, but the questions are pretty quick hitters. But who's your favorite pitcher to watch and why? And you had a front row seat to some good ones this year. I have. I've uh, I've been pretty blessed with some of the guys I've gotten to watch over the last couple of years. Um, so, I, I mean, it's it's hard not to, as a rookie and then as a young guy in the league, having DeGrom go out there every fifth day and watch him pitch. I mean, it's, it's electric, you know, it's, I, and, and I think there's, 
there's times where it's just like, how, I mean, how does anyone hit him? You know? And then it's like, I get a front row seat at a guy like Max this year where he does things differently. He has different skill sets and it's the same thing. You know, he's, I look up and it's the fifth inning. He's punched out 11 guys. And it's like, geez, like, what are we, what are we doing here? You know, it's like, so I, I think I've always, I've always been a fan of just watching guys that dominate physically, mentally have that presence on the mound. Even when I was younger and I never really had a favorite pitcher. I just, I loved watching the guys that were at the top of the game um, that showed stuff that, were were dominant but then when they had failure came right back and and the next start they had one of their best of the year you know and um now seeing those those guys from the front row and and working with those guys on a daily basis seeing what makes them the best has been um an absolute treat for me as as a young guy coming up in the league and um so yeah i mean it's it's hard to pick between some of the guys yeah. that i've gotten to watch but it's it's just been fun to watch guys that I've had on my team and then guys that have come into town, you know, I've, the, the Astros came to our place this year and, and, um, I met Justin Verlander at your place last year, but mm. this year was the first time I'd ever seen him pitch in person. You know, I'd watched him on TV plenty of times and, and seen mm. him dominate, but to watch a guy like that, that's been around for a while, um, and had done it at such a high level to finally see him in person. That was exciting for me. You know, it's, it's fun to watch guys like that the first time around that you see them, um, whether it's a pitcher or a hitter. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, favorite teammate of all time and why? Like who, who was the guy that was very impactful for you um, over the course of your career? And you can, you can pick a couple if you want. So I don't want to get you in trouble with anybody. Yeah, I, I, I've been I've been pretty lucky. You know, I haven't had really too many guys that were stinkers or um, <laughs> bad teammates or guys that that weren't really liked in the clubhouse. You know, I had. Um, my rookie year, I had, I had like Conforto and Nemo were two guys that really kind of took me under their wing just as, as teammates and, and, um, saw, saw me as another guy that had come through the system. They had both come through the Mets system. And, um, so they were great for me just in terms of, um, being, being teammates and and being guys that I could ask questions. Um, Mm -hmm. my rookie year, I had DeGrom, Waka, Porcello. I mean, I had. Yeah. A couple different Cy Youngs. I had different perspectives, you know, so I, it's, and then now having Max, you know, I've, I've been, um, like I said, I've been blessed to watch some guys pitching wise that, um, I've gotten, gotten along with, I've gotten, um, some joy and, and a lot of good answers out of working with them and, and asking questions. So it's hard, you know, and then I have guys like, uh, like a Tommy Hunter, who's, who's been around forever and, it's um, never dealt with Tommy, is it? No, I mean, like, <laughs> that's the thing. Like, it just, you know, you have a bad one. He comes by your locker, and it's, um, it's just like there's a guy like that where it's just someone you can talk to. He's mm-hmm. seen it all. I mean, he's seen so yeah. much in the game where it's like you you run something by and something that you thought either he's thought it or he's mm-hmm. heard it from someone else, and and so it's I don't it's just, it's hard to pick one. You know, it's. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to have Tommy on this podcast and I, I'll just be like, Hey, Tommy, go and let him tell stories for the hour. I don't know how long the episode will be, but he'll have plenty of people listening. Um, so yeah, no, it's, I've, I've had a lot of good guys that I've ran into so far along the way. And it's, it's been fun to work with, with pretty much everybody that I've played with. That's awesome. Um, I know you're, 
you're a very well-read guy. You're very articulate. So I got to assume that you're a, a pretty regular reader. What's one book that you think every baseball player should read or, or every coach, you know, whoever it is, what's, what's helped you over the years? Oh, um, you know, I think the mental ABCs of baseball and of pitching, um, yep. were huge for me. I have the mental ABCs of pitching. I've got a copy that I keep with me, hard copy at all times. And I have a copy on my mm -hmm. phone. Um, and I worked a lot in college with, with Dr. Ken Revisa, um, yeah. before he passed and, and, uh, it was a lot of fun working with him. You know, it was, he had a great way of kind of explaining things and, and he had given me a copy of that book my freshman year at Oregon. And, um, it was something that I had always kind of gone back to. Um, mm -hmm. it was kind of like a, a manual for me to always go back to. And there's always something new, even if I read something for the 20th time, you know, I yeah. picked out something different. I saw something different. Um, non-baseball wise um shoe dog was great um mm -hmm. the phil knight book you know it's just yeah. kind of um seeing how many times that nike could have gone down you know how many how many times they could have failed starting as blue ribbon sports and then and then switching to nike and um just i mean you look at a company like that and a guy like phil knight that took over an industry and um I was actually just up there uh, for alumni weekend and I was talking to some people about it and it's like, what if they would have gone down, you know, and, and what would the sports apparel world look like right now? You know, there's some of the, you look at some of the brands that were leaders in the industry and, and held big pieces of the market uh, before Nike got big. And, and some of those are out of business. Some of those are struggling to stay in business and, and, um, I think there's something in, in his story and the company's story um, that I think anybody, athlete, someone looking for motivation, someone looking for perspective can find on there. That's interesting. Um, our last one, advice to a teenage David Peterson. If you go back to 15-year-old you. Break a leg. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think – I would say, like I said earlier, if, if, if my son has the opportunity that I had to choose, if he loves baseball and he plays baseball at a high level and um, has that opportunity in terms of college or, or professional baseball, I don't know what in 18 years, what that, uh, what professional baseball is going to look like in, in college baseball. But um, the, the college versus pro debate, I think is something that I would really tell someone in, in that position to, um, really look at, you know, because it's, you don't college, you kind of get to pick where you're going, you know, it's, mm -hmm. if, if you've got multiple offers and whatnot, you, you really kind of get to choose your path and, and what's right for you. And, um, I think things have kind of, the water's kind of muddied a little bit with the way that some of the stuff has gone recently with transfer portal and NIL. And, yeah. and I remember when I got there, you know, it was, you transfer, you're sitting out a year, you know? So it's like, yeah. no one would transfer. You would, you would suck it up and you'd stay where you were or, mm -hmm. or whatever it was, or you go the Juco route. And, um, so yeah, I think that's something that, that would, I would, I would really point out is if you have that to, uh, to really consider it, but just in a general perspective, I would say, um, and I, I think it's, it may sound cheesy or whatever, but let's stick to the process, you know, ask questions, um, when something works for you, use it, you know, keep, there's gotta be a level of consistency, I think, um, in terms of 
your work, your work, your routine, everything. I mean, my favorite player growing up was, was Derek Jeter and, uh, watching some of the, the documentary that came out on ESPN with him. And he talks about consistency a lot, you know, and that's something that, um, I've taken in my careers. How can I be the most consistent possible? Um, Mm -hmm. and he talks about, he said every day from day one in the big leagues till his last day, you know, he did the same exact thing routine wise, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and that's when you find something that works, stick to it. Um, build off of it it may change it may eventually get thrown out but you know it's i think that's something when you're trying a bunch of things there's a lot of guys now especially with all the technology all the facilities all the i mean learning stuff about training on social media there's there's so many platforms for us to get information which is great but at the same time it can get complicated um yeah. and there's a lot of guys that i think bounce around and and do a bunch of things and they never really have a level of consistency. So I think that's one thing is, is the things that you can, if there's something that you can keep consistent in your routine, keep that consistency, do, do something the same every single day and, and have that, that repetition. That's a, that's a really good point. Too many guys jumping around before they even have a chance to critically evaluate what's working and what isn't. Um, hey man, this is awesome. You, you shared a lot of really good insights and I love the the comment you made earlier about like, not being velocity driven, be very process driven. You reiterated it there. Like it was all about getting outs and, and helping the team win. And I think that's such an important lesson now is, you know, we, we got a lot of guys that are very focused on sometimes the wrong things and so much more important to be dedicated to the process as opposed to the destination. So really, really cool to see you um, highlight that. Um, hey, you got, you got awesome stuff on social media. It's um, it's at David underscore Peterson underscore three on Instagram. And I know you're on Twitter as well. So um, really appreciate you taking the time, man. And obviously, big off season ahead. And best of luck this upcoming season. Well, I appreciate it, Eric. It was a pleasure.